0: Today's episode of Your Stories is brought to you by Field Notes. Field Notes brand, USA-made memo books, and other products, including seasonal limited editions. Visit FieldNotesBrand.com or 400 North Main in Chicago for more information. Thanks, Field Notes!
1: Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd.
2: You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different, uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups.
3: Your stories to me has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked.
1: Uh, I've heard stories about all those things, uh, maybe not, not a lot of push-ups, I maybe haven't heard a
2: lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdologues is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So
0: Hi, everybody. I'm Eric Arnault, and this is the Nerdologs Presents Your Stories podcast, coming back for part two of our latest team-up with the Chicago Design Museum. Inspired by their newest exhibit, which houses the work of radical modernist Dan Friedman, this episode is themed Be Radical, and it features stories from radical Chicagoans like Savannah Million, Sam Rosen, Roman Titus, and Joey Stevenson, plus music from myself, Katie Johnson Smith, Becca Brown, and... Also, contemporary classical duo Connie and Katie. As always, our collaborations with the Chicago Design Museum are so fun and fulfilling. Thanks, of course, to CDM's Tanner Woodford for booking this show and the venue and making sure we all had a great time. We certainly did. Uh, So this is the part of the intro where I typically put plugs. Uh, So here's a big one. Your Stories is going on tour. I'm taking some time off between day jobs, and I thought I would do something I've always wanted to do, so that's this. Uh, I'm hitting the road behind this show, and I would love to see you. Uh, I started planning this, let's be real, a little later than optimal, so I only have a handful of dates confirmed right now. There are a bunch more in the works. Uh, You can keep up to date on our website, nerdalogs.com, as well as our Facebook page, facebook.com slash But for now, here is what is definitely happening. Sunday, May 7th at 7 p.m., we're doing a tour kickoff at the Some Office Theater in Chicago, so you can come help send me off in style. Uh, Tuesday, May 9th, we'll be back at Denver's lovely Voodoo Comedy Playhouse at 10 p.m., and one founding member of the Nerdalogs will be there. Uh, I wonder which one that is. Friday, May 12th at 7 p.m., we're back at the Nerdist Showroom at Meltdown Comics, celebrating the launch of a brand new Nerdalogs podcast with producer Gary Lucy. Now, if I were a betting man, I'd say you can also count on a Saturday, May 13th show in San Francisco, a Monday, May 15th show in Seattle, and a Friday, May 19th show in Minneapolis, and there are definitely other shows on the table, uh, looking at Portland, looking at Montana, and we'll see what comes through with those. But here is my call to you. If you're a listener west of Chicago, I'd love to see you at one of our shows. It would be great to know you're out there, and if you have a story to tell or a venue that needs some entertainment, we would definitely love to hear from you. Send an email to yourstories at nerdalogs.com and let me know who you are and where you are. We'll get together and make some last minute tour magic. It's gonna be a blast. So that's exciting. Another exciting Nerdalogs thing, our second card game is now up on Kickstarter. Now you've heard about this a couple weeks in a row, but it's very important. Uh, It's called Competition Kitchen, and it's a cooking show game with a Nerdlogs twist. The game even includes cards designed by cooking luminaries like Mario Batali, Ina Garten, Mark Summers, and more. There's about two weeks left to fund this bad boy, and we'd love it if you could check it out. Hit up Kickstarter and search Competition Kitchen, or check out our website or Facebook page for more info. Alright guys, that was a lot of plugging. We'll be back next week with more tour news. Until then, let's get to these stories.
5: Oh uh, yeah, uh, this is a little tune by an independent artist named um, Lady Gaga. Uh, Lady Gaga, Gaga, yeah. Lady, Lady Gaga. Yeah. Yeah. You heard yeah. of her? Joe, it's from Joey. It's from Joanne. Yes, yeah, yes. Um, her middle name is Joanne too. Also,
0: one of the I think one of the best albums of twenty sixteen. It's
5: so good. It was so, so good. good. It was so good. Yeah. Uh, so this is the easiest song to play on the piano off of her album. <laughs> <Nope>.
2: <laughs> no, no.
5: <laughs> what?
0: Unlike a blues festival in Ohio, there's no black keys. <laughs> Oh, thank you, one guy out there. <laughs> uh, I have cool. stunned Becca
5: in this island. I blacked out. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, was in, I was in my sunken place <laughs> for a second. Uh, cool. Um, I'm not, yep, yeah, cool. All right, great. Do it. <laughs> Got it. one seem better. Lord, show me the way to cut through all this worn out leather. I got a hundred million reasons to walk away. But baby, I just need one good one, good one. Tell me that you'll be the good one, good one. Baby, I just need one good one to stay.
2: Justin you should check Smith. her out on
5: Spotify. She's an Lo- independent artist. Lovely.
0: Yeah, check Lady Gaga out. We we're, were trying to bring her some exposure. Here's another real indie hit uh, by two artists who certainly never topped the charts in their day. <laughs> this is one of my favorite songs of all time. Let me know when you're ready. I'm good. You're good? Yeah. All right. Oh. Well. <laughs> if you sing Eyes Baby, I'm going to cry. Um.
6: Every time Ice Ice Baby comes on the radio and I think it's this song, it solidifies why I have trust issues.
5: <laughs> pressure Pushing down on me Pushing down on you No, never, never. Under pressure It burns a building down Splits a family in two Puts people on streets. Ba-ba-ba-ba.
2: Beat it up, beat it up.
5: That's okay. It's
2: the terror of knowing what this world is about. Watching some good friend scream, let, let me out. out. Pray tomorrow takes me higher. Pressure on people, people, people
5: on streets. Da-da-da. <laughs> okay Chippin' around kick my brains around the floor These are the days it never rains but it pours It'll oh be doosh, ba 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 ba
2: It's the terror of knowing what this world is about. Watching some good friends scream, let me out. Pray tomorrow takes me higher. Pressure on people, people on the streets.
5: Turned away from it all like a blind man.
2: Set out a fence, but it won't work. Keep coming up for love, but it's so slashed and torn
7: Why? Why? Why?
2: Love, 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 la. Insanity under
5: pressure, we're
2: cracking Can
5: we give ourselves one more chance?
2: fashion word and love is you to care for the people on the people edge on the of the night and love is you to change our way of caring about <laughs> ourselves this is our last dance this is our last chance this is ourselves under pressure. Under pressure. 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 Thank
0: you. Hell yeah. That was fun. God damn, that's a good song. Oh, one of the best. That was like, even though it was such a sad day, one of my favorite tweets the day David Bowie died was, well, now God can hear under pressure the way it was intended to be performed, finally. So, because Freddie and David are both past. All right, guys, you're all with it. Yay, second half. It's a party up in here. Coming next to the stage, we actually have another duo of musicians who perfor- uh, wrote a song, a piece just for tonight. This is Connie and Katie. Yeah.
6: Um. Hi guys. So, uh, real quick shout out to the guy who read Tanner's email. (laughs) Because I read that and I was like, I don't know anybody's name in this email, but it's so nice. It's like, I feel like I can't say no. You know, it was composed for me, I felt. And also to the same storyteller, I feel like that person who offered you $100 an hour to smell your feet... If you had taken them off, up on that, I feel like they would have smelled your feet for like one second and given you like a dollar, whatever, 60, whatever that would be, it just occurred to me. Um, we're Connie and Katie. Uh, we wrote this piece this week for this podcast, and it's called Invasive Species. Oh, oh, oh. Thank you.
0: Connie and Katie, everybody. That was radical as fuck. Hell yeah. Give it up. All right. I know my music, but what are, what are those instruments? That's a, a bass clarinet? And a bass flute. And a bass flute. I've never seen a bass flute before. Hot damn, that was awesome. Okay, great. So one of the hosts of the Roboism podcast, this is Savannah Million.
3: Savannah um Alex and I uh, Alex Cox and I have a podcast together called Roboism and we were both supposed to be here tonight but she had a conflict last minute so I'm here by myself so you're gonna be really nice to me okay um, thank you. so I wrote I wrote a little story in like the past day um, and because Roboism is our podcast about robots it's about robots so um, Yeah, Roboism is a podcast about uh, robots and feminism but it's also about technology and pop culture and a lot of Elon Musk updates Um, (laughs) and it's a lot of fun but it's mostly about robots so I spend time reading about robots and talking about robots and thinking about robots and robots are really cool um, and they're complicated and powerful and they've gotten really complex lately. Um, You can have conversations with them, and sometimes they can even trick you into thinking that they're human. Um, And we want them to be more like humans. Uh, We give them faces and voices and names and personalities, and we project our emotions onto them. We write stories and movies where robots are indiscernible from humans, and then we ask philosophical questions that challenge what humanity is. Um, but robots and algorithms aren't quite like humans yet. Uh, they, they, don't, they haven't quite grasped that humanness quality, and instead they just try and act like humans. And people love to point out robot shortcomings when they try and act like humans and fail, um, whether it's videos of robots playing soccer and tripping all over each other, or uh, like when you ask Alexa for the recipe for a martini and she tells you it's one part gin to six parts vermouth. Um, or a BuzzFeed article comparing Facebook's newsfeed algorithm to an awkward uncle who like, knew that you liked horses when you were nine and then is just like, sending you horse stuff all the time. Um, and we use the term robotic to mean inhuman sometimes. Um, a word to describe something that goes through movements without consideration, um, follows protocol, disregards emotions, operates robotically. Um, but humans are awkward too. Um, and I know uh, Victor said that this subject was cheating, but I apologize, but um, uh, it's integral to my story, so I'm just gonna, you're just gonna bear with me. But uh, my mom passed away really recently um, and really suddenly she was diagnosed with a really rare aggressive form of cancer in early March, and she didn't make it to April. And since the day of that terrible diagnosis, it has become increasingly clear to me how lovely my friends are. And even my most awkward friends have said some of the kindest things to me, even when it's really hard for them and even when they didn't know what to say. But some of my friends People who I see every day or multiple times a week um, haven't said anything to me. And it's kind of like I'm sitting in the middle of the floor crying and I have a Roomba and it's just going around the room vacuuming like nothing is wrong. And it's just programmed to do that. And I'm so sad and my friends' lives continue on like Roombas, like robotically. And I notice... And I don't mean to call them out and I would hate for anybody that I know to listen to this and think that I'm talking about them or that I'm upset with them for not saying anything to me um, because I'm not and I can't be because I've also been the Roomba friend. Um, I've never gone through anything like this before, but I know people who have and I never knew what to say to them. And I felt like if I brought it up, um, they'd be overwhelmed or they just didn't want to be reminded and so I didn't say anything um, like I was programmed to do right? Um, We want robots to act more like humans, but we're not always great at acting like humans ourselves. Um, We're awkward, and we make mistakes, and we act like robots, and it's hard to step out of our routines, it's hard to process death, and it's hard to talk to someone when you don't know what to say. I think that we can do a better job of acting like humans. I think robots can, too, but so can we. And I want to try and act like a better human by being kinder to my friends, even when it's really hard. And I think that being a good friend is pretty radical. So, thanks.
0: Savannah Million, thank you so much. Oh my god. Give it up for Savannah, everybody. That was lovely. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I, that's weird. Yeah, when my, when my grandma passed away, like I still, that was years ago. I told a story about her passing away last time, two times ago, we did a design museum collaboration and, you know, I still remember... Which of my very good friends never said anything about it, which is weird, but I don't think you'll ever forget that. I don't, and I never. I don't hold it against them, just like you but I'll never forget who never said anything to me, and it, it's hard. We all, we all are awkward, but I don't know if a human has ever been awkward enough to say, "Put the cube in my chest, Sam," which is probably the most awkward thing a robot's ever said. Thank you, Mary Beth. Thank you, Mary Beth. The one person out there. This movie so bad. Like, you guys, I love Transformers, and those movies are fucking terrible. <laughs> anyway, coming up next to the stage, we have the founder of One Design. This is Sam Rosen. <laughs> no more Optimus Prime uh,
4: uh, stuff from me. I'm done. Hello, everybody. Uh, that story was amazing. Um, and I am intimidated to follow it and I can barely see my writing so bear with me here. Uh, I'm so honored to be here. There are such amazing people who are talking and I'm flattered for the invitation so thank you. And this really isn't a funny story but you can laugh if you want to. Um, This story uh, starts about five years ago. I'm an entrepreneur and at this time I had a few different businesses um, that I was working on. One was a design agency called One Design. Um, We probably had a, a, a a dozen or so folks at the time. Uh, I had a co-working space called The Coop and a a little startup that was called Dust Time, still is. And I was mainly focused on that. And when I say I, I actually mean we. Uh, I have a business partner and a lot of wonderful people that I work with, but I say I a lot. So it's a we, and I'll use them interchangeably. But uh, my business partner's name is Pat. And at this time, Pat and I had been raising money for this little startup, uh, which for me is probably the least enjoyable experience known to man um we you know we had to it's a lot of rejection basically is why i don't like it um and through a matter of an introduction after like the thousandth introduction we were introduced to someone who was like immediately very 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 interested and for the purpose of this story we're gonna call this man man uh d d uh wasn't uh, just excited about this one company that we were trying to uh get money for he was interested in all of our companies he wanted to buy the agency. He wanted to buy the co-working space. He wanted to invest all this money in this startup, and the deal was like extremely exciting and lucrative. And um, we didn't know much about this guy, but he seemed—he came from a reputable place. He seemingly had a bunch of connections and experience and and money, and we were able to come to terms quite quite quickly. And in the belief um, that the 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 deal was going to happen, it was really imminent, we started to make these really big changes to our business. Um, we started to spend money that we didn't have um, and f- take people who were making money and put them on projects that weren't making money and thus like hemorrhaging lots of cash. Um, and uh, it was okay because everything was fine and this guy was coming and, and everything was going to be great. I think you guys know how this ends. Um, <laughs> Now, it's hard to explain from like this point in late summer how we get to the end of the year. Um, and for the sake of expediency and not kind of rehashing these terrible life choices that I've made, I'm going to speed through the next couple months. But I'll give you some highlights. Um, as you can expect, as we patiently waited for this agreement to come to terms, I was always a few days away, and there were some big checks coming in the front door, so we were cool. And for months, we had these like shady dealings that kept happening. These included... Fake wire numbers, misleading cropped photos of checks, just like outright bold-faced lies to my face that could only meet, be made by an asshole psychopath named D. Uh, and it became increasingly clear that D was not whom he represented, and seemingly he did not have the means or the skills to, uh, to make this thing happen. But at this point, it was the end of the year, and Pat and I were, we were way down the rabbit hole. Uh, a kill deal would be a kill to all of the businesses and with this point you know there's a dozen people and their families and their respective mortgages and their respective car payments and we all would have been screwed so we reluctantly pressed on and we believed uh, we could get a deal done uh, if we just like made it forth and worked amicably towards each other so this story really culminates uh, around New Year's Eve Uh, we have given this scumbag uh, till the end of the day to to do the deal um, and it was the last day of the year, and I think the deadline we gave him was 11 a.m. We had have a signed agreement and money in the bank in escrow by 11 a.m. And by some miracle, after like five, six months, the agreement was signed before 11 o'clock, but the money was not. And the, until the money was there, the deal wasn't going to be done. So we, you know, he pleaded with us, like, "Give me till the end of the day." And we waited six months at this point. So we're like, "Fuck it, what's a couple more hours?" <laughs> so it's New Year's Eve. No one's in the office. <laughs> thankfully. And we're like pacing around and we're just on this guy's ass, right? We're hounding this guy, you know, uh, what's up? Like just trying to understand if this is really going to happen or we're just totally, totally fucked. Um, so um, then our, another dude, our investor calls. He goes, you know, it's like three o'clock. It's a holiday. The, the Fed is closed. Like it's over. The money is not going to come. And we we're like, Son of a bitch. So we texted him. We're like, "Where are you?" He's like, "I'm at the bank right now." We're like, "What bank?" <laughs> He's like, "This bank." So we drove to the fucking bank. It was fucking closed. Um, so that was it, man. I mean, the deal was it was over. We called him. We said, "Fuck you, D." Um, not so optimistically. We we're just like, "This is this is bullshit." Um, and uh, and the deal was done. And I drove Pat oh, uh, home and. I was devastated. I mean, you know, uh, it was New Year's Eve. Um, I am a, not a college uh, graduate. Um, I've like tied my life uh, into these, uh, these businesses and these projects. Um, and uh, you know, everything that I worked for and everything that I was wrapped up in my life of who I am and my identity was kind of wrapped up into these business and my blood, sweat, and tears, and it was all foiled by this fucking con artist, this fucking sociopathic liar. Um, so I came home. I looked at my girlfriend, who, who's now my wife, um, and I fell apart. And I wondered if, like, she'd still love me. Um, because as long as she's known me, shes I've been this. Like, this is my company. That's how I met her. That's the kind of a big part of our thing. And she was totally unfazed by the whole thing. It was very clear that she did not care, and that was not comforting, because, like... <laughs> my whole life, you know? Uh, um, So, uh, it was also New Year's Eve, just a reminder, In a couple hours, for some reason, my friends were meeting at our house, and then we were going to go out and we'd drink champagne and celebrate the New Year's. And at this point, I did something that I always do when I'm really stressed out. It is my three-step process into not being an asshole, um, and it is uh, taking a bath, smoking some weed, and watching The Daily Show. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, my bath was uh, nice and ready and warm, and I, I put like my toe in the bath, and as I'm putting my toe in the bath, I got a text message from D. It says, check your bank. And I did. And the money was there. Uh, it wasn't like pending or hold, it was more money than I've ever had in my entire life in the bank, and I was like, what? <laughs> um, and I knew something wasn't right, but I knew that the story like wasn't going to end right here. But it was New Year's Eve. I had more money in my bank account than I ever had before. So I took my bath. I uh, shook it off. And I thought, well, we'll see what happens tomorrow. But tonight, you know, let's, let's have fun. So we had a really fun night that night. <laughs> And then the next morning, uh, New Year's Day, my banker calls me because you gotta have a good relationship with your banker, and he says, uh, "Sam, I can't really tell you how I know this or why I know this, but that big check you got, um, I have like 99% confidence that that check—it was like a four hundred thousand, it looked like the biggest check I've ever seen. It's gonna bounce. Um, by the way." Uh, don't bounce that big of a check with your bank. It's kind of funny what they do. They, they shut off all of your things. But he, he was right. The next day, poof, the money vanished. Um, and I was forced to write a letter, which was the most difficult letter I've ever written in my whole life. And it was to all the people that I worked with. And these are people that I love and care about. There's some people there over there. And um, it was basically like, hey, um, uh, well, I was nicer and more succinct. But basically like, uh, you lost your job and uh, I can't pay you for last month yet, and uh, Happy New Year. Um, And uh, it was terrible. Um, I never had to send that email, thankfully, because by, like, freaking Hail Marys and luck and good friends, we survived that blip in time. And all the companies still exist, and everything's hunky-dory now. But... That moment was like a very transcendent moment for me in my life. Um, And I learned a few lessons that I've taken from this experience that I wanted to share with you guys. Um, Because it wasn't just like a conceptual idea that I lost everything. Like I had written the fucking letter. Um, And so the things are, are pretty simple. One is, and I thought I learned this like 15 years ago on eBay when I tried to buy a shitty computer from a crook, that like if it sounds too good to be true... Yeah, it's probably true. It's probably too good to be true. But the big one is, it's tremendously easy to wrap your identity into your work. Um, If you're someone like me who lives and breathes what they do, it's easy to conflate the two. But you are not your work. In fact, there is no one in the world that gives as much of a shit about your job and work as you do. And it's easy to forget this, especially in these really shitty moments. And at this low moment of my life and it was one of the lowest I can remember something really amazing happened, and I felt stronger than ever, because all my friends and my family and the people around me that cared about me, they didn't falter. Um, I've been a good person to them. I've always been honest with them, and I've built meaningful, long-lasting relationships with them. And in this like terrible moment, they had my back. Um, And I remembered in that instance that I had real friends and folks in my life that would take care of me. I had bought enough meals for other people and let people crash on my couch and listen to their stories when they were out of luck and and gave them advice. And uh, I knew in that moment that I wasn't going to end up hungry or on the streets. And I was still surrounded by all these lovely people who who really loved me for who I am and not for, for what I do. And I think at the end of the day, that's, that's all that really matters. So, that's my story.
0: Thank you, Sam. Sam Rosen. That was great. As someone who has closed a business that he ran, it is, it is very hard. Also, raising funds is the, like, the worst, and asking people for funds is terrible. So, guys, at the end of the show, I'm going to tell you about the Nerdalogs new Kickstarter. Hey! Hi. No, it's pretty cool though. It's pretty tight. All right, but we have two more storytellers. First, coming next to the stage, the founder of Oh Soldier Fair. I can't read my own writing. Also, a famed grower of mushrooms, the edible kind. This is Roman Titus. Oh, you got a mic?
1: I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so it's been said that uh, failures are not, or failure is not just for failures. It's for everyone. Uh, failures have more experience. So this is a story about uh, failing and roadblocks and overcoming all of that uh, or what I call tripping to perfection. Um, So two years ago I started uh, growing mushrooms based on a TED talk that inspired me to start growing, try to grow mushrooms in my apartment in uh, Chicago. during that time, I probably threw away over a hundred pounds of sawdust and bird seed and wheat brand uh, and mason jars um, from all of the uh, failed experiments that I did uh, during that time, um, whether it was from fermentation or scorched bird seed or trichoderma, which is the entire like the enemy of a mushroom farmer. Um, Tons of failures along that line, but what that led to was understanding how uh, the mushroom growing process, uh, from petri dish to fruit, how that works, what what all is, what all it takes to get, you know, from step A to step Z, um, as well as understanding what my landlord thinks is uh, the appropriate amount for a ruined bathtub drain. Um, <laughs> Uh, so once I understood that I started growing mushrooms in my apartment. I took it over two spare bedrooms, a spare bathroom, um, my living room, my kitchen like all of this had taken over um, And one weekend it was Thanksgiving I went home for to Ohio for I think five days. I came back I found a tray of mushrooms that should have been... A hundred mushrooms, you know, small, medium-sized, nice, I'd cloned them well, so they should have been all the exact same. And what I found was one massive mushroom, the the top had not even opened, it was the size of a cue ball. Um, And what had happened is the mycelium realized, hey, this fucking guy's not going to give us any water, so we're going to die, so let's put all all our carbon energy into this one mushroom, it's our best chance of reproduction. So I came home to that, and that felt a lot like a failure. Um, But what that led to also was this idea of, I've gotta be able to teach a computer to do some of this work for me. It's, I'm an incredibly lazy person, I just wanna teach computers to do my work. Um, It also led to an incredible journey across the astral plane. Um, um, But all of that then, (laughs) Yeah, it's slow in the uptake, It gets there,
2: uh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: but all all of that led me to this idea that like I want to push this project into a venture. And uh, so, I had built this computer automated um, kind of space, this unit, this box, um, to grow mushrooms in. And um, I decided that I want to go forward with this. I'm going to get rid of my apartment at Humble Park. I moved. Uh, back to Ohio, where my family's from. My great-grandfather's farm uh, was falling in disrepair. I moved back there, rehabbed it, moved into it, built a lab, all this stuff. Okay, mushroom farm, this is happening. Um, A month before I moved back there, uh, I got a call from the GM of Google Chicago's cafeteria who had heard about the box I was working on and wanted to come see it. So we had drinks, he came and saw it. Um, I told him I was looking for you know a place to prototype this thing. Um, he said, do you want to do it in my cafeteria? And I said, yup. <laughs> um, so I did that. And, and then all of a sudden I realized like, oh, this means you're driving a lot. And so for the next nine months I would, every Thursday morning I would wake up at 4 a.m. I would drive to Chicago, service the box, harvest, around seven pounds of mushrooms, put it in their fridge, sanitize it, service it, put new substrate in it, and then drive back on Saturday to go make substrate blocks. Um, and all of this felt like really poor planning uh, to me personally. But what I learned from this, or what I gained from it, I guess, is you know this great client partner, I gained this... Um, incredible space of time every single week, pretty consistently, um, to just get into my head, to think about re- responses and things that I needed to think through, um, all of this type of stuff. Um, I gained a new understanding of nature as an adult, like learning you know, this relationship with the woods and the stars and all this stuff. Um, as well as uh, incredible places in Chicago to sleep in your car, should you need should you need that? Uh, <laughs> I have the research. Um, so that started to happen, and while that was happening, you know that, that was working, it was great, it was awesome and um, so I wanted to build a bigger space and um, the this, this GM at Google offered me this. Uh, cooler that was broken, and he was just like, yeah, we're gonna throw it in the landfill, take it. So I took it, I fixed it, and I modified it so this smaller space that was building, growing like seven pounds of mushrooms a week, could now grow 50 pounds of mushrooms a week, and we were 85% done, the hardware was all done, we were getting her to put code on it, uh, to start testing it, to, uh, to launch it in their space. And I got a phone call from this GM, um, that they were bringing in a third party food service agency to run all of the cafeteria and he was out and all his vendors were out, which means that I'm out. And um, after several thousand dollars of investment into this product, this unit that was gonna go to this specific place, um, which ultimately wasn't where I thought the entire project was going, um, it's pretty disheartening. Uh, but that forced us to start looking at um, at ourselves as farms and not necessarily looking at a, a myriad of places um, where we 're growing on site and you know a, a, a small a smaller space uh, located in one single space that uh, we were growing mushrooms from. Um, And then that led to starting to talk to a mushroom farm. So okay, we're going to be our, mush- our own mushroom farm. Like we're not going to do it on site. We're going to do it here. Let's talk to this mushroom farm because what I want to do is build systems. I don't. I, in the long run, I don't want to be a mushroom farmer. Um, I just want to, you know, I want to. I want to sell guns to the revenue revolutionaries. I don't want to be a part of the revolution. Uh, like I just want to feed it. Um, And uh, so, started down that path. um, And found a really great partner. um, Went down this path for three months, and literally a couple weeks before signing final paperwork, uh, some of our due due diligence um, brought up some information that drastically changed my position on the partnership. and ultimately kind of ruined the partnership and totally, uh, in my mind, you know, uh, uh, ruined the amount of work. So the, the prior to that three months of work towards this one direction that um, no longer exists and so now I have to backtrack three months to back where I was before I started this conversation and then pick up from there um, which is incredibly frustrating but um but that ended up leading to uh, something that i don't exactly know what happens next i i don't know what happens next because that's actually (laughs) what's happening right now um and what i do know is uh that it's going to go somewhere um that somewhere we'll probably not be where I would have expected it and it wouldn't be if you asked me six months ago where do you want to go if you forced me to give you an answer I would have said something Uh, but it wouldn't that wouldn't be where we're going to go next Um, but what I do know is that wherever it goes it's going to work out and it's probably going to be radical and that's where I am
0: Thank you, Roman Titus, (laughs) traveler of the astral plane, Dr. Roman Titus stranger, everybody. That was awesome, guys. We have one more storyteller tonight, kind of the reason we're all here. Uh, She is the event sorceress of Soho House. Maybe we'll edit that out. Joey Stevenson, (laughs) (laughs) event sorceress. Hello,
8: hello. Let me get situated here, because I'm doing something very radically redundant, which is doing a slideshow presentation and a podcast. You are welcome, audience members. Okay. Okay, so... So, I'm kind of the reason um, that you're here tonight, in that I curate the events at Soho House. Um, So, we have been open two and a half, nearly three years, and... uh, we are just shy of 2,000 events in, which is kind of crazy. Um, kind of gives me shudders and jitters just thinking about that. So we, we asked Tana. We're doing a design month at the moment, and we asked Tana to be our first guest curator. So we said, do whatever the fuck you want. The whole weekend is yours. Do whatever you want. And he said, I would like to create this exhibition, which you'll see on the elevator doors, um, and kind of hidden around Soho House at the moment. And we also, um, he also asked whether he could invite the Nerdalogs along to do some, some creative storytelling. Um, so uh, I guess the, the story that I'm about to tell, and by the way, podcast listeners, there is a Mondrian-slight-style image with Michelle Lamour, a famous ballet superstar, and a, a dancer from Geoffrey Ballet, who is the only person who can fit into the 23-inch waist Playboy Bunny vintage uniform that she's wearing up on the screen. You're going to have to bear with me, because I'm going to have to to talk through the, the imagery. Um, so, what I do as the event programmer here is I'm, I'm basically uh, a magazine journalist, which is my past, but brought into the present. I, I try and unearth Chicago stories, tell them, celebrate them mm-hmm. like the the nudlogs. And our two epic moments during each year is Halloween and New Year's. And so I I've done everything from ask James Bond, not the spy James Bond, but the master projectionist who does all of Roger Ebert's movies when he was alive and who has set up pretty much every single vintage reel-to-reel projection setup up in, in North America. We've gone to his secret private cinema, right through to, to curating an event with Camp uh which I'll tell you all about after the event if you want more details. But we've, we've um, done something with them, done a pop-up up on the roof with vintage canoes and, and grass lawns up on the roof in our swimming pool here. Okay, so there's a lot of Playboy Bunny up on the screen. This is our staff. They all had to volunteer to wear this. Um, but the thing that I wanted to talk to you about was why the hell I'm putting up lots of Playboy imagery. Um, so like I said, one of our um, biggest events of the year is, is Halloween. And for Halloween 2015, um, one of the things that I decided that I would love to do as the event... And when I say the event, I mean all six stories of this building activated and telling different stories was the birth of Playboy. So I love Chicago. We're not just Soho House. We're Soho House Chicago. So we try and unearth and really celebrate Chicago's stories. And so what we did for this one was tell not just Playboy, but the birth of Playboy, born in in Chicago in the 1950s. So Playboy is obviously pretty protective about its uh, logo and its name. So I asked Christy Hefner, daughter of Hugh, whether we could have their blessing to tell the, the birth story, the, the, the origin story of her father's empire um, because we didn't want to get sued. Um, and she was a sweetheart and she enabled access to the full Playboy archives from the past and also um, all of those Playboy Bunny outfits that you see on, on the screen behind me um, it's actually one of the few patented uniforms in America. There's, there's very few, including, like, army uniforms. The Playboy Bunny uniform is, is one of the few patented uniforms. And so they've never let anyone else, apart from staff, wear them, ever. Um, so these ones are a combination from the TV show and also from uh, Playboy Club Miami from, from the, uh, the late 70s next part of the story everyone is seeing what is a giant grotto that we built up on our swimming pool roof and it's got a waterfall entrance and there's a very lovely couple of members in the front and there's also in the top right hand corner a very naked lady um so the result of all of this the research the request was that we were trying to take uh all of the attendees to the party back in time ...to February 29, 1960... ...and this is when the first ever Playboy Club opened. So we recreated that first image that you saw... ...the the kind of Mondrian-esque style awning. Uh, We had full access to the archives... ...so we took all of the original imagery... ...and we turned it into the light boxes... ...that were on the walls... ...in the original Playboy Club Chicago. And we got super nerdy. I am very, very nerdy. We, like, forensically researched... ...everything to do with the club... There was the Welcome Cocktail Bar that we had downstairs. Uh, we recreated the first ever... We recreated the the magazine cover of the magazine that was published during the February 1960 when the, when the club was open. Like, uh, bartenders were wearing fuzzy bunny masks. Um, we... The program for our event was the Bunny Manual, which all of the, the bunny mothers would follow and, and train Playboy staff. We recreated the font, the typeface, all of the illustrations hand-drawn by one of our amazing members here. Um, we had uh, like this legendary jazz saxophonist, um, Frank Catalano, um, who plays at Green Mill all the time, is in a band uh, with Jimmy Chamberlain. Um, he researched, again, forensically, the original playlists that were at the club. Um, And, you know, just in a more general, it's a party, so it was fun. We did everything from Playboy bunnies, petting real bunnies, down in our gym and boxing ring. There was a roller disco party. This uh, image in the right hand corner was a rather risque performance by Michelle Lamour, and she was recreating the character of the Femlin, which is one of the illustrated characters that appeared on the front cover of the magazine, but also was on the dishware that Playboy Served um, their food on in all of their clubs um, we built this grotto there was a lot of nudity and, and, and possibly a lot more than nudity um, so let's just say a lot of babies could have been made that night okay so this is the lovely Christy Hefner uh, in the turquoise nightdress everyone had to wear vintage 1960s pajamas and then next to her on the left is her brother Cooper Hefner, um, both both Hef's, um, children. Um, so actually, um, the lovely Tanner, my, my new close bud, uh, he invited Christy to come here tonight and to speak. Um, but unfortunately already, she already had a prior engagement. So, um, I'm kind of secretly glad that she couldn't make it because although I'm talking a lot about a party that we did, um, and I'm talking a lot about Playboy, um, the one thing, the, the reason why I wanted to talk about it was because I wanted to talk about her father. And if she was sat there in the audience in front of me, I would have been deeply mortified. <laughs> Different podcast. Um, but I would have felt really awkward talking about her father in front of daughter and also sort of like editor-in-chief of his magazine Empire at one point so um, I know Christy is going to listen to this podcast after we're done so uh, uh, hi Christy Uh, thank you for making the party happen Uh, you are a legendary human being so I'm gonna click forward one more slide and we have actually an image um, from the magazine um, from the early 60s So this is getting a little bit more into Tanner Woodford territory here. Um, We have uh, George Nelson, uh, Wormley, Saarinen, uh, Eames, all of the greats um, in furniture design here. Um, So the the one thing that I wanted to kind of like end on was actually instead of me telling a personal story, was just talking about somebody that I consider um, as someone who's radical. And I'm not an expert in this at all. Like, you know, I'm a, a magazine journalist. I'm a, a fascinated neophyte. And I don't, don't purport to be an expert. And I'm also not going to get into any of the kind of, like, arguments around uh, playboy and feminism and the objectification of women. Um, I just wanted to share something which was very personal, which for me was the thing that I learned when I was doing a deep dive into this topic. Um, and it changed my perception, you know. Everyone envisions him as this, you know, 90-year-old gentleman wearing very silky pajamas. Um, and regardless of the fact that that in its own way is very radical self-branding, uh, it was something that really changed my opinion. And when I was researching the this party, I did read a lot of the articles, a huge amount of the articles. And I read articles by Jack Kerouac, and I read interviews with Kurt Vonnegut, and like in this 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 spread from the magazine, Eames, Mies van der Rohe, Joe Colombo, even really obscure, well not obscure but but not mainstream things like the SF collective Ant Farm, like this was all stuff that I read in copies of vintage Playboy magazines when I was researching. And, you know, it was really interesting and fascinating and mind-changing that I saw this magazine that I had a different opinion about taking modernism mainstream. Um, And then, even just as a little aside, um, you know, we're talking about Dan Friedman tonight and his relationship with with Keith Haring. Keith Haring actually art-directed an issue of the magazine. So... um, um, The other thing um, that I learned, that I read, that I observed, um, was actually uh, a very progressive stance that kind of surprised me. So there were articles by Miles Davis in the first ever issue, uh, Malcolm X, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, um, and they were talking about equality, and they were talking about equality in the late 50s and and early 60s. I learned that Aretha Franklin played one of her first gigs ever at Playboy Club Chicago here in the city aged 19. And I read that, that when Playboy Clubs became very popular in that era and they were franchised out, that there were clubs in the South whose owners would refuse to integrate and Hef would buy them back at a loss to his business and he did that because that wasn't the world that he wanted to live in and I know we think that now but this is like the 50s and the 60s and and I'm just in a trying to empathize kind of world Um, it's a different era and a different culture from abortion to reproductive rights and to capital punishment and the Vietnam War um, I kept seeing as I was reading through every single magazine from its start through to about nineteen seventy five, I saw Heff taking a stance. I mean I even saw footage of um, him sending his private jet plane over to to Vietnam uh, in order to airlift out some of the, the orphans affected by by the war torn country. So I'm I'm not saying that that he changed uh the existence in there were there were lots of things that you know pros and cons for everything, you know he he stoked the fires of of sixties and sexual revolution, but he also for every centerfold he put in would like document their stats and the inchage of each curve that they had, but what for me um, moved the needle for me um, was that by doing this event that told a Chicago born and bred story was that I learned that this Chicago born and bred figurehead and editor um, he used this magazine and he used this brand as a general as a platform for what in this era and still is some very radical stances thank you Joey
0: Stevenson, everybody. Yeah, give it up. That was wonderful. I think we all learned a lot tonight about a lot of stuff. Becca, Katie, can I get you back up, please? Help us sing along. Oh, yeah. Got a slow start.
5: Oh, wow.
0: Not happy birthday.
5: <laughs> Close. Good guess. When there's nowhere else to run, is there room for one more sun? One more sound If you can't hold on If you can't hold on Hold on
2: I wanna stand up I wanna let go You know, you know, know you don't. I want to shine on in the hearts of men. I want a meaning from the back of my broken hand.
5: Another headache, another heartbreaks. I am so much older than I can take. in my affection, well, it comes and goes. I need direction to perfection. No, no, no. Help Put me, me out. out, yeah, yeah.
2: You know you gotta help me out. Yeah, yeah, don't you put me on the back burner, you know you gotta help me out, yeah, yeah.
5: When there's nowhere else to run, is there room for one more Some of These changes ain't changing me, the
2: cold-hearted boy I used to be. Yeah, yeah, you know you gotta help me out Yeah, yeah, don't you put me on the back burner You know you gotta help me out Yeah, yeah, you're gonna bring yourself down Yeah, yeah, you're gonna bring yourself down Yeah, yeah, you're gonna bring yourself down, yeah, yeah, down. Yeah,
0: yeah, down. Alright, here's the part where y'all are in your keep If you don't sing along, this show never ends, okay? We'll <laughs> sit here all night I got so, but I'm not a soldier. I got so, but, 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 <Nebenan policcro witnessing> but I'm not a soldier. I got so, 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 but I'm
2: not a soldier. I got so, but I'm not a soldier. I got.
5: I'm not a
2: soldier I got soul But I'm not a soldier I got soul But I'm not a soldier Yeah, yeah You know you gotta help me out Yeah, yeah oh, don't you put me on the back burner You know you gotta help me out yeah yeah you're gonna bring yourself down Yeah yeah you're gonna bring yourself down Yeah yeah don't you put me on the back burner You're gonna bring yourself down Yeah yeah you're gonna bring yourself down
5: Oh you're
2: gonna
5: bring yourself down last call bring yourself down the battle is won with all these things that I've done All these things that
2: I've done If you can hold on If you can hold on Hold oh. on Thank you so much, guys. Thank, Thank you. you to Tanner, to the Design Museum, uh, the
0: Soho House, Chicago. Thanks to all the storytellers, Katie and Becca, Eric Garno.
7: Oh, thanks,
5: Arneau. guys.
0: This has been Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com/nerdalogs to donate today, and go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome.
7: Thank you all. Thank you all. I am grab two three, three five four eight X.